Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Raphael. What's going on? Hmm, what is going on indeed? <laughs> we took a we took a, a little breather from the hot, hot heat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Back. Yeah, it's weird. Um, I think, um, of course, this episode is about NFTs, and I'm happy to yeah. talk about it, but there's this weird thing where artists often don't make money for two, three years, and then catch a big fish, and then they don't make money for two, three years, and then you even it out, and then... Yeah. still pretty low and so with it's nfts yeah and then so this has happened to me before but nobody has any idea what kind of sales you have which is very that's one of the nice things about art sales that nobody knows what's going on mm. the clandestine so, nature of the art world is usually yeah to our benefit. because it but sounds that's, that's it sounds it sounds great but when you spread it out over three years or 10 years even and etc so that it's it's kind of a weird feeling this uh Transparency, but I guess well, even even in corporate the- culture, salaries. Uh, literally this week, I was having a conversation about it because you know everyone wants to get to this place where it's even and fair and da 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 da. But then you lose this opportunity to like, if someone does a good job, do they get? Shouldn't they get a little bit more? And, and yeah. you know, all of this stuff comes in. And then there's some companies that went so far as to make all the salaries in their company transparent, and like colleagues decide who makes what. But then I've read that also causes a lot of. Um, How is it with you guys? Well, we have set bands, like, so you're at a level and then there's like a matrix that like literally like a scorecard. So like, you know, you're a level one and a level one has to be able to do these things. And to get a raise, you need to get to level two. But to do that, you have for six months, you have to do these things consistently. And then your peers will judge you and your manager, you know. Here's a funny thought experiment. A long time ago when I was in high school, I was a dishwasher two nights a week in a restaurant. Mm -hmm. And... uh, yeah, it's a good yeah, humble we, story. It's a good humble Hollywood story. You got to start somewhere. <laughs> but the the whole strategy for me was they they paid me by the hour. I, I don't know. I don't remember what like seven fifty guilders or something. So that's probably like three euros, something like that. But the everybody was stoked to finish in the kitchen so they could all have drinks, and I wasn't interested in the the conversation they were having. So I figured if I just take my time and be as slow as possible, I get paid more. So I would mm-hmm. just stretch it out, and they're like, uh, "Aren't you done yet?" Like, no, no, I'm just finishing these plates, and I, I just figured, yeah, the longer it takes me, the more money I make. So that when you say, "Oh, you worked really hard, you're going to get a bonus," it's like hard work is not necessarily better results. So yeah, yeah. Well, there's this whole thing where it's like um, people usually undercharge because they undervalue their their expertise and the knowledge that they've you know accumulated over a life lifetime right so you know if you're if you've been working on something for 20 years and it takes you 10 minutes instead of someone novice taking you know 10 hours should you be paid less and the the answer is no in 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 most worlds the or like uh, some circles the response to that is this concept of value-based pricing which is like something should be priced based on the value it creates for the client that gets so tricky also with familiarity of your people you grew up with that you favor and mm-hmm. that kind with of course, inequality. Yeah, yeah and so it's very, very complicated. But the, yeah, I, I always think it's easier to believe in other people than in yourself. Well, you know, it's been really interesting over the last few weeks is, um, you know, you've been part of the NFT hype, but I, I've really felt part of the, like, what are the alternatives hype? And yeah. that was not a discussion I expected to start to occur. Yeah. Um, but you know, and because I'm not you're afraid I'm gonna, of money, you want something that doesn't work. 
Well, yeah. So people are like, Jeremy is terrible at the NFT thing. So <laughs> let's let's talk to him about what other alternatives yeah. there are. Yeah. Um, but there, I think what we're talking about at the end of the day is um, is bigger than any specific hype, right? So yeah. we have to. Well, a couple of things like uh, we did one NFT episode, and now every podcast is about NFTs, and even Saturday Night Live just had a great sketch about NFTs. So mm-hmm. what can we add to the table? And nothing. Yeah. We're, we're not macro economists, <laughs> and we can't do predictions where the Ethereum space will go, and etc. And I'm not, I'm not an expert on blockchain, that, yeah. but we can talk about working online for free for a long time and helping platforms grow, and uh, not getting paid directly or somewhat, and and so the the way I understand it is also that NFT as a whole is a social network and the more people you get on board the more valuable it becomes. Well wait, yeah. Before yeah. we even get into it though, do we want, we did get a question in and it was like it was a it was a, it was a question about what questions we should be asking. Yeah. I don't I don't know if we should play that, but I I mean the question was so much about my money that I was uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, what are you going to do with the money? I can't even remember what the question was, but I was like, I don't think I want to answer this. Okay, question. but I just want to ground it in the fact that we did. But receive it was an Jonathan Lewis. He's a he's a loyal listener, yeah. so I, I'm happy that he sent in a question. It was just that specific question. I was a bit uncomfortable. Oh no, no, yeah, but yeah. the reason I bring it up is that I want you know we're still doing audience questions. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. what was interesting about his question, which we're not going to play because it's too personal, <laughs> but it was that. He was like, he trailed off. Like, he's like, and what about this? And what about that? And he's like, and there's so many other questions I might have. But I think the, the you know, some big questions that you and I have been discussing over the last few weeks um, are worth discussing. And, and there hasn't maybe, been maybe, much discussion. Maybe about one them. question that's interesting that I've noticed from people is, is this for me? And what if I fail? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a question that's on a lot of artists' minds. And I think um, basically what we're seeing is, We've always talked about the attention economy, and very few people reap the rewards from the attention economy. And here, it feels like more people have a chance to financially benefit. So, mm-hmm. someone who's good at creating a meme who never made money can make something, and it's not going to be Mark Zuckerberg-style money, but you know, it's something. Yeah. And so, what I mean is, we've always heard this word, the attention economy, but we're all just like uh, free workers in the attention economy. Well, the flip side of this, yeah. So, and and I'm speaking from being someone who has attention. Is someone who who had attention even before the social network. So I was from the beginning. My websites had a lot of visits, and I really didn't do any work other than making the work. So it just people liked the work and shared it. But I rarely directly monetized the traffic. I had some Google ads on two of my old websites, and that worked for three years until Google decided. There's no text on your website, so it's clickbait, <laughs> and that's illegal, and so they took the ads off. But for a while, I think for three years, I, lo- I lived off of uh, Google ads. And, and um, I, you know, I still did projects on the side, but that was my basic income, and that was kind of futuristic already. Um, and then I slowly also started selling websites, but websites also cost money to make, and the server run, and the, the, the domain names, and the sysadmin, and etc. So it's not the most profitable project, and, and uh, so this is kind of wild. This whole thing, and like, yeah. But if we if we and, ground and, and this you, discussion, you've, you've in been the, you've been yeah. uh, like you were half the traffic of YouTube for a year, 
and uh, they <laughs> definitely benefited. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if that I don't know if that's true, but no, no. I, I you, saw the CEO of, of Google, and they're like, "Oh, if it wasn't for Jeremy Bailey, we'd, we'd have never been where we are." <laughs> yeah, we never would have done it. He's but so actually, famous. I remember prior yeah. to YouTube, like, let's go pre-platform. So I remember when I started exactly. Out, yeah, when I started out, like, I posted videos on my own website. That was a big thing because you know it video wasn't was impossible. expensive. It was super expensive, so actually, I had yeah. to host videos on the Let, let's my university explain this. server. Yeah, let's explain this for the, the young ones listening. <laughs> the internet used to be quite slow, and the bigger the file, the longer it took. And if your uh, file went viral, all of a sudden you get a server bill that wasn't pre-announced and that wouldn't be capped. And so, I really knew net artists that all of a sudden had to pay two, three thousand a month in server bills because their work got popular. Yeah. Yeah, so that was case, the, like, the opposite of monetization. That was demonetization by fame. Yeah. In my case, like one of my videos got posted by Boing Boing, which was like a big like Reddit kind of yeah. competitor at the time. And then like that took my own website, my whole website down was inaccessible. And so I had to put everything on the university servers because I also couldn't afford these the data you're talking I about. I had to do uh, the same thing. Like I, I had the flash files, which were quite small in file size. And the HTML page would be on my server, and I would host it from somewhere else because it, it, it was, it, my server would just crash all the time, and I would get really high traffic bills, and yeah, yeah. So and then this is like a 200k file, and still that adds up when a lot of people see it. Yeah, yeah, and so you know, you've, you've, I, I remember feeling famous, and it's part of like how I ended up generating the, my 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 satirical moniker of famous new media artist because like. The, you know, I, I think the way, the way you're talking now is your satirical moniker, and that is your true innocent self. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> but I, people would actually recognize me in the street, which was weird. Like, because yeah. I was known for this. Because there were only five people doing video on the internet back then, so you were like one yeah. out of five people. And I was known as world the world's strongest nerd at the time. Just yeah. FYI, if you want to look that up. But like, <laughs> um, yeah, you could be a viral sensation, and you still can. But fewer, you know, yeah, there was. Yeah. Do you remember that from, GIF, uh, net famous but poor? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like there was no money to be made. In fact, it cost you a lot of money to be famous at the no. time. When I, and, I when I put up the Google ad, it was really I started dancing at home. It was this miraculous faucet <laughs> that you just opened. I was just making a hundred bucks a month, but that was so miraculous in the beginning. Yeah. And it started adding up later. But yeah. Totally. Well, th- I mean, for that reason, like I can remember when the first video platform emerged. I can remember seeing YouTube for the first time and being really excited that I Do you I remember the first to... video you saw on YouTube? The first one I saw. Hmm. So I think my first one that I saw was a, a freestyle by a, a Biggie or a Notorious B.I.G. And he's in Bushwick and uh, it's this old tape of him. It's very iconic, but that was the first time I saw it. And I think music was definitely a, a, a way in where you're like, oh, I can find anything. No, I don't remember. I don't remember the the first uh, video, but I um, I assume that like it was yeah pretty low res. Bad. I could look at my history. Um, I remember the first artist videos I saw at the time. Um, well, the, probably the first videos you saw, you didn't have a profile yet, so it wouldn't be recorded in the your YouTube history. No, that's true. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's right. Yeah, exactly. I created a profile before really, really Google quickly. owned YouTube. Yeah. I mean, I signed up in 06, though, but YouTube was launched in 05. So you're right. I, there was probably a little bit of crossover to me watching before. Yeah. Um, I mean, these were the days when people were like, oh, my, I have a Gmail invite. I got a one gigabyte in, in inbox. Yeah. 
But the the main thing for me at the time was not actually about making money. It was about saving money. So I just, you know, yeah. and it was about distribution. Yeah, yeah. And so I wanted to be able to like, actually, for people to actually see my work. Um, that was, and, and as far as the attention economy is concerned, it was like, you know, attention, you know, was... I felt like I could get it, but I just couldn't like actually manage it. So it was helping me with a management problem. Yeah, um, and and you kind of lose control in the sense that uh, uh, you've had issues with copyright around music and uh, oh my videos goodness. taken down and things like that. So you 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 give up something. Yeah. So what's happened in the time since then? Well, that when it first started, by the way, it wasn't owned by Google, right? It was it was independently owned, and as you know, over time, it's become a stricter and stricter marketplace, but also the number of people uploading content and gaming the algorithm became so high that if you put a video up on YouTube, like I can remember even trying to monetize my first videos with their advertising stuff. And by then it was already too late. Like I think I made 17 cents and you know, there was no, I, the hundred dollars that you mentioned seemed like, wow, how did people do that? Yeah, um, yeah. And of course we know now that to be, to earn an income on YouTube requires this like kind of um, continuous effort, like every, you know, you have to post like well, that every was day the, or every yeah, other day. That was the cool thing that I had these pieces in domain names. And I think for two, three years, it started, it was like hundred bucks a month. And then it was 200. And then I put the, the same uh, banner ads on two or three websites. At some point, I think for two years or something, I made about 3000 a month. Mm -hmm. And then if you do other projects on the side and sell work here and there, this is a pretty comfortable life. So I was, I was very happy with this, magical faucet and then it just ended but yeah yeah but i mean i think ultimately like if we get back to the nft context it's interesting because you know everyone's talking about nfts but they're not talking about the fact that nfts have actually existed for a few years and one thing that's changed in the last couple of years and it's something that we've talked about actually on the podcast probably two or three years ago is that there are platforms that are now ma are managing the relationships or the attention of an audience. And I think that's an interesting conversation. So, and yeah, what's yeah, specifically yeah. interesting to me anyway, just like to get it out there is that some of these platforms are run by artists, which I've championed for like Folia. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. Yeah. Folia is a great example. Um, so is Feral File, which is Casey Reese's platform. And, you know, there were experiments so the, that preceded the, this. The technology is open source, and there's mm -hmm. open C and things like that. And then people build an experience on top of that. Yeah. yeah. And so, but like, you know, what I, what I think is exciting about it is like when I was getting on YouTube back in 2006, I, there was no way I had the capability of building a platform like that on my own. Um, I can remember when I first started as an internet artist, I would try and build little platforms at a PHP and stuff. Yeah, our friends uh, did Arena, uh, A R E dot N A. Yeah, that was that was a sort of artist-run social network. It's still going, and it's kind of like a Tumblr meets Wikipedia. I would say I don't know how you would describe it. Yeah, yeah, but I think that, that the idea of the artist owning the platform is a, is central to the debate of NFTs, but yeah. also like central to the last 20 years of artist economics. And it, it creates the tone of voice. Yeah, because the platform that existed, you know, let's take it out of the internet art realm or the digital art realm. The platform that existed prior, of course, was the auction and private gallery and institutional yeah. Yeah. and public and artist-run center kind of platforms. But like, yeah, and I think that these examples also left dot gallery by Harm von the Dorpel and Folia dot app and all these things really feel like artist-run spaces. But mm -hmm. the, like, I think 
one of the things that happened is we all knew our eyes were shifting to the screen more and more. Like, I think I knew that in 1999, like the eyeballs are going to be on the devices, not in the gallery. But I think this year just catapulted it where people really don't go to exhibitions anymore. And so does it make sense to make an artist-run space physically? And I don't know if we'll go back to that. I think a lot of people are wondering... Yeah, well, this continued to be exciting, but I, I've always found that if you're at an opening, people look more at their phones than at the work. No, I mean, I think physical experiences are going to be like treasured. And prior to the pandemic, there were, you know, people like um, that were doing ticketed events like artists, collectives and things. Which could be were, NFTs. The yeah, well, you can do ticketed NFTs, too. Yeah. Sure. I don't I don't think the NFT part is actually that crucial to the, the economics because all people want to do is access an experience in that case. Um, and same, similar probably to NFTs, all people want to do is is be able to potentially um, own a, a digital artwork and feel like it belongs to them. Yeah. Even though there are copyright concerns, et cetera, et cetera. The, there you know, are details, you know, but the, but the, the, the central no, idea... No, no, yeah. yeah. Like, let me bring it back to like product design, which is, um, you know, there's this kind of... And we've talked about um, Clayton Christensen on the podcast quite a bit over the years, but, you know, he came up with this concept of jobs theory and like the job in his mind yeah, is like yeah. what is the outcome or goal for the customer what are they actually seeking to achieve yeah you know you, he, so he has people a don't story buy. he has yeah. a story where uh, people went to mcdonald's and they have a breakfast menu but a lot of people ordered the milkshake because <laughs> on their commute the milkshake took longer to consume than the breakfast sandwich because it's so thick that it takes 20, 30 minutes. one hand. Yeah. So it's kind of entertaining while you're driving. And so the job is to keep you occupied more than to fill Just your to stomach. Just to feed you. Yeah. Yeah. And the, you know, the typical example that we use in product circles is people don't buy drills, they buy holes, right? So um, Yeah, you want water, not a faucet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I think what you have to look at in the spectrum of what we're discussing and on the historical timeline is what are, you know, what are the artists and what are the audiences seeking from a goals perspective or jobs perspective used like Christensen language. And it's the feeling of participating in culture that is the yeah. one thing that remains consistent. And artist-run yeah. culture actually was about that as well, right? It was yeah. about... And something I've always said that the, the end goal of automation should be for people to work on things they like and not things they have to do. Mm -hmm. So if, if there's a future where most tasks are done by machines and the factory jobs and whatever then it's this it, i don't know if it'll happen but this sort of star trek world where people pursue their interests and there's not even money and uh, oh you're talking about like the like even mark said like eventually the robots will allow us all to like you know just live on vacation yeah but if, if you think that ai could do almost anything then human expression and uh, craft and athleticism and things like that will be the most valuable I mean, we're a long way from that being an equal opportunity for everyone. But um, yeah, I get it in principle. Yeah, you know there is. But but that's like, why I, what I'm trying to say is that we are headed in that direction. That, that therefore, human expression. We're mm -hmm. talking about NFTs and their value, and it's uh, about about attachment to. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. bottom line for me, like you know, I've said this like a dozen times over the last couple of weeks, is like. I gave away my work for free to a company that made billions of dollars for 20 years, right? And yeah. how many of me did that? Actually, a lot of folks did that. And then even if you're a musician, you basically give away your, you know, your your distribution rights to Spotify. Not, and it's not better than a record label. 
um, because it's part of the attention economy necessary for you to even exist to be relevant, right? And yeah. so, how long have we been giving or forfeiting our labor to others? You know, and as artists, I I am excited about the idea that artists would take back the you know the monetization of their own labor, and they can choose what to do with it or not. I think actually what we're going to see, and I don't want to get into prediction mode, but like is what what you know cooperative labor and monetary labor like monetization of labor so there's probably a place where because i know like even before feral file casey reese had another project where it was just about artists trading editions with each other right yeah um and you were part of surf clubs early on right where it was just about trading links and um and sharing resources right so i think ultimately giving things to Twitter and YouTube and Google for free is just like, I'm not willing to play that game anymore. And even Twitch came along, right? And they saw yeah. that. The, fun, the funny thing is you, you, as ideological as all this sounds, you still need social media to get to, to, to let people <laughs> yeah, know about yeah, your true. NFT. And, and not only that, I think it's a type of art that if you're a very introvert artist and you make long form content that's very hard to bring to nft it's an attention short attention span medium it's kind of like tumblr in the sense that you browse and you just see a lot of moving images and you're like oh that's cool i want one so it it favors a social media aesthetic so mm-hmm. as much as it, whether you agree with social media or not it it does favor things that work in social media no but you're bringing up a really excellent point and it reminds me of um our our good friend Constant Dullart, um, former Always. The, the, the spiritual <laughs> the, old- the spiritual guide of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's for only hosted only co hosted once, uh, but he did a good job. Uh, <laughs> but he no, early but he always on, comes up. Yeah, early on, you know, a lot of us uh, from our cohort, you know, were on Facebook, and Constant's attitude towards platforms at the time, I remember, was this uh, this movement called defaultism that he was all about, and the idea was that. He would take the interface and he would he would use the interface itself, you know, as the canvas for his artwork. So he would like fill in his Facebook profile with like junk characters or like you know or blank uh, PNGs. Is that what's called structuralism? Is that the, is that what it ended up being called at the time? No, no, though, but it, I thought that was the art historical term, but I'm not 100 percent sure. Which no, no, just, no, I'm just talking about whatever structure you're think, you're working yeah. in. You're like, oh, I'm, I'm working in a gallery, so. The context is the gallery, or I'm oh, working on a Facebook page, and the context is, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think like with, yeah, within art history, there's that. There's also obviously like once you get into the social realm, you get into relational aesthetics and things like that. Yeah. Like you start to talk about the yeah. relationship. Net art is, is the poor people. man's relational aesthetic. <laughs> but that defaultism reminds me of like kind of the Marshall McLuhan cliche we all know of the medium being the message, but you can't ignore the platform as part of the vehicle for the delivery and the concept of what is delivered, right? Yeah. So, but I, I, yeah, up, yeah. I think out of all the platforms, I think uh, desire plays a bigger role in NFT than the platforms before. Mm. Tell me about that. What do you mean? Well, there's an auction and how desirable is the work. And I think before, mm-hmm. um, if you posted something on a surf club and some posts did better than others, I don't think there was so much emotion tied to it that, oh, that NFT went for more than that one. And what mm-hmm. does that mean? What I've noticed is that there does seem to be like a pursuit of a certain aesthetic, though, already that is like premium in quality, like early internet uh 
vocabulary. Remember the vernacular web was about amateur aesthetics as yeah. a point of yeah. distinction. But amateur aesthetics do not seem to function within the financial and embeddable structure of the NFT. So, you know, it seems like I'm seeing like hyper, you know, high-end rendering, which is why I was saying like I thought people like Tabor or Roback are perfect for NFT because they've got like such a glossy high-end look. Yeah, like it looks yeah. like you, you can like touch the thing, like the physicality of it is... Um, or the narrative is actually evidence. Yeah, in but the, I do in think this object. is going to be such a broad medium that there will be many different clubs mm -hmm. within it. And uh, it, 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 if you would tell me this is all going to be over tomorrow, I'd be like, sure. And if you're going to tell me this is going to be as big as the web, I, I would believe you too. Oh, at this point, you've got a lot invested in it, but like. And so there's, and so do others. So there, there is a certain like similar to the stock market, right? Well, like people I, I was thinking about if this is really, this seems more exciting than Instagram right now. Like, and hmm. so mm -hmm. when you think of Instagram in the beginning, you're like, is this a fad? Or when Twitter yeah. started, you're like, is this a fad? This is not, and they haven't really shrunk. So, Should I become a TikTok artist? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Hey kids, I'm on Snapchat. <laughs> but honestly, I read an article last week that was like about a TikTok artist and how they couldn't like translate their TikTok career into a YouTube career. <laughs> yeah. It's like, That's it the is next a year. really weird place. You know, if you had told me 10 years ago that there were going to be like N platforms and the plat number of platforms would be 100, let's say, and that's, you know, like, remember Vine? Yeah. That platform came and went, right? But yeah. people had built careers on it before it went. And um, Vine was great. But ultimately, each platform, you're right, it probably stands in for like, in any city, you might have different art scenes or different scenes, um, and they're going to there are going to be formal parameters, right? Like within an artist-run center, there's a certain certain kind yeah. of work that doesn't yeah. show in a private gallery. Within a private gallery, there's works that don't show in museums. There are, is crossover, obviously, right? But there's yeah. that you can't ignore the context. Well, is, I, is I always remember I, I did a thing called YouTube Conversations where I would put up a YouTube thing on a projector, a little movie, and ask the audience to do the next and the next and the next, and just yeah, there were a lot of events like that early in yeah. YouTube days. Yeah. And then um, we did one, and everybody was just... I probably told this story before. Everybody put sort of funny pranks on YouTube and uh, funny stuff. And we're, I was sitting with a friend, and they're like, what would be the least cool video to show right now? And it'd be like, a trailer for a Godard movie. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, I think in every scene, there's something that's very cringy and something that's encouraged. And Yeah. Well, yeah, definitely the instinct of the artist is going to be to violently reject the popularity of a thing because, as we've discussed previously, like our jobs, whether no one told us this, I don't, I don't think it's actually ever explicitly stated, but through art education and just through art culture in general, there is a there's a fringeness to the identity of the artist that requires them to reject, nor like normativity, and I which I actually celebrate. Um, and it's interesting when the thing that was fringe becomes the norm that the that the cycle repeats, you know, like you wouldn't expect. Like I've yeah. been advocating personally for artists to own the means of production for going on a decade. And then when it happens, I'm also like, mm, don't like it. <laughs> so like, I, I don't I'm not sure I trust this. Um, and I think healthy skepticism is really healthy and should be encouraged because it advances uh, the media. And that's what artists do. Right. Like yeah. they never stop and, criticizing. And, yeah. One of the things I want to talk about is that uh, when the internet started, I started with domain names and it was in this uh, group of artists called Neen and we were all 
talking about the idea of domain names and that would be the coolest form of ownership and the the in the digital realm everything is uh, copyable except domain names so it seemed very mm -hmm. obvious to me in the business world people trade domain names and why couldn't those be art objects and for some reason it never really took off in the sense that people have bought domain pieces but they haven't started trading them and so there's there's something When you buy a domain name, you have to pay for it every year. So you don't really own it if you forget to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And so domain names are kind of nice that you can remember them and you can share them. They're, they're easier to remember than a string for an, an NFT. But an NFT, once you buy it, it's yours if you just leave it in the attic for 100 years. And then yeah. It's still yours. So that, that's a... So and that was advocated for. And there were, you know we've talked about it previously with Neen and, and Miltos that that was yeah. like... There was a movement. I mean, that was there was a conscientious effort yeah, to make but, that. But a it, thing. It, it, I think there's been a lot of um, the history of convenience, and I think there's a level of convenience. We're gonna after NFT, there will be more streamlining where even your grandpa could do it because right now they can't remember the password or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so it's always convenience wins. So whatever objections you have to NFT, and there are many sincere objections, it solves so many problems. Convenience wins. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it, because when you think about it, like domain names are kind of, why wouldn't you trade them? But uh, it, you own one of my domain pieces and you no, almost lost the, the domain name. thing it reminds me that, um, yeah, and I almost lost it. I know, I know. Yeah. I'll never, <laughs> I'll I'll never let never that go. Like, no. This down. <laughs> no, but, but just as an example, that someone, the YouTube, someone the who is tech savvy and works in a startup still has a hard time holding on to a domain no, name. No, no, you're right, yeah. But you're also reminding me of the YouTube moment, which was like, I didn't want to manage my videos and my servers Your data. anymore. Yeah, yeah, so I was willing to pay YouTube for the convenience. And the way I paid is by not being paid, obviously, right? Like I yeah. gave them something in exchange. Yeah, same it was with a value exchange. It seemed fair at first. Yeah. Over time, it seemed less and less fair. Um, and one here we are today. One right? of the things that's bizarre to me is everyone's talking about encryption of text messages and what a big deal that is. And then mm -hmm. people use Gmail. And yeah, which uh, literally you just sells let, your words for Yeah, Google just reads your whole inbox and everybody's <laughs> like, yeah, no problem, whatever, but find me on Telegram. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah exactly. <laughs> they're, they're, they're like posting their Telegram chats on email. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that that was the... Like, and even, you, uh, let me... Let me uh, expand even if you're not on gmail you're sending emails to other people with gmail so you're still there like uh, yeah it's funny no i know yeah the old saying of course is like if you're not paying then you are the product right like yeah um yeah and so in a lot of these cases you're the product right so it's yeah. it's weird when you have platforms like instagram who are also advocating like hey sell your products on this thing where you're also the product and, and what we have as a result of yeah. that is like well it, it, it's a trade-off because it does make marketing easier where maybe before as an artist you would have to make slides mm -hmm. of your exhibition and then buy ad space in an art magazine and yeah. it, like those were all serious costs like your gallery would have to put buy ads in art forum for people to know about your show there was no other yeah. way and and art forum could just charge whatever they wanted and but one thing that won't change is like you know if we come back to our original statement regarding the attention economy is that in situations where there's an abundance of information right scarcity you know, like of attention is the resource, right? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, on Instagram, well, then it goes to being being a, being a strong channel. Yeah, but I'm more I'm wondering about the, all of these NFT platforms because essentially, over time, the information will become abundant, 
and therefore like there's no way you but can that's the same as instagram no of course they're all the same but i'm yeah. just saying like we shouldn't expect anything different so like your question earlier was like you know if you're an artist should you get on this platform well ultimately yeah. It, yeah. it's not going to work out for you if you don't you know, like you don't just automatically make money because of the attention economy unfortunately like within the internet yeah because yeah. the internet is about vast like unless you can get to some you're the first first mover on the newest newest thing but the number of people who get in the door first is so small um yeah i i, I, I don't think it's easier to make a living as an artist because of NFT, but I think it got easier to make a living if you were already a digital artist. So I think digital artists have been at a disadvantage in galleries and they're like, yeah, that's cool, but could you make something more sellable and et cetera. Yeah, it's felt like and shit. And now, it's, like- now it's, it's, <laughs> everything's flipped and it's this bizarre world. The one thing that we'll have to see also is that a stamp of approval in an NFT world whether that translates to a stamp of approval in in regular art world or if it's actually a stamp of disapproval and because the, the funniest thing when nfts came out the, the all the art established were like oh this is all just screensavers this is mm-hmm. screensaver art and i'm like what's wrong with screensavers well you did a screensaver show yeah yeah, yeah. so <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome yeah but it's like <laughs> is that a is that a derogatory term screensavers is that are those a bad thing i think we all grew up with them and we all enjoyed them yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone ever threw shade on painting that way, but... Um, no. <laughs> like, what is this, a painting? Yeah. I mean, uh, is it a placemat on the wall? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's going but, on here? But so we'll see how it all works out. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, though, like, I think the thing we wanted to talk about today is... Um, well, you know, th- maybe maybe think about the... It's funny to think about examples, but you know Erwin Wurm, the artist, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the One Minute Sculptures? Mm-hmm. Um, I love those. The kind of performances. They seem like kind of perfect. If he was 18 now, he would probably do them as NFTs. Mm-hmm. But I would like them to him to still do sculptures. Like, yeah, but per, also, per, yeah. You know, but yeah, but, yeah. but <laughs> it, what I'm trying to say is a lot of artists start out more ephemeral and then yeah. go in a more formalized uh, physical direction because they have more budget, they have more opportunities. And no, it's interesting because right now I'm, you know, I have my non-NFT or I've been calling it an NFT platform it's because it has uh, not, it's non-fungible textiles. Yeah. But like I have my, my sculpture platform and I've been onboarding like a new cohort of artists onto it. And um, a bunch of them have never like are not digitally native and like yeah. I'm handling the production for them and answering their questions. And actually for me personally, and selfishly, it's really, really interesting because I like I had taken for granted how much knowledge I have about yeah, yeah, yeah. Both yeah. you know, you're like finance, yeah, of course that's how you production. do this. Uh, bu- 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 yeah, yeah, I was like, this is how you scan your body. What's wrong with yeah. you, stupid? Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is this is how you do a, you rigging. Well, that, that, you, I think you know. that's always when you visit your parents and you want to help them with their home entertainment system, and then you just open up this can of worms of incompatibilities, and you're like, holy shit, this is going to take four weeks. Yeah, and the reason I bring it up is because there's a lot of people who are using, I think, language that maybe, you know, even me, who's like taking a critical stance on this or like, you know, skepticism, where it's like, oh, it's just a GIF or it's just a JPEG. But actually, the work that goes into the JPEG, if to come back to our original value-based discussion, yeah. might be hundreds well, of that's, hours. Yeah, that, no, but it's not even, back to that argument of like hard work or good time, results. Yeah. Um, Grimes had a... NFT sale on the Nifty Gateway and it was I think three images and three video clips and you know she's a great artist and she's she has her very own 
universe sort of in her own style and she's been making music videos on youtube and has been creating a name through that mm-hmm. and then she re- releases these six little piece digital pieces and they, she made six million off of that yeah and i have no idea how much she made off of youtube but i think did she, did she need six million is the other question but that's yeah, another question yeah, but yeah. maybe she's not the best example but <laughs> my point is her music videos i think had much more impact culturally than those six little clips Oh, yeah. six little files and so but the six files were valued at six million and I have no idea what the YouTube revenue was on those videos but yeah I mean same with Aphex Twin he released that clip on Foundation and then it was valued at I don't know 70, 80 Ether but if he would auction off Window Liquor that video like that, that's mm-hmm. what I'm curious about like what's the cultural value of that that's kind of interesting well, don't forget that like that video is wrapped up in a different value. Um, yeah, contract. the label maybe owns the rights and whatever. Yeah, copyright, it, which is precedes all of this. You know, but you could still work that out. Like the you could make a new contract, and say like, well, Chris Cunningham is going to get a part, and Avery sure. Swin is going to get a part, and then the label. There's no reason it's... copyright can't um, transcend or can't be embedded in a contract. Uh, yeah, digital. yeah, you can work on something. But what I'm interested in is that. Maybe for a lot of people, they're doing a test in NFT, and they're like, it's not their main medium. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, I got something left over, this weird render, let's put it in, let's see what it does. And people are kind of buying that as a stock in the artist as a whole. They're not necessarily buying that work. Yeah, that's interesting. Also kind of reminds me of like a you know, the, the collector who does a studio visit and sees like a bunch of sketches in yeah. the trash and asks if they can buy them. But, the, but, but <laughs> all that being said, I think for both of us... Uh, we actually have full works on the internet, not like, oh, that's a leftover. Well, yeah, I've, I, you know, both of us have worked to create internet native works. And a bunch of them, as we discussed in the prior podcast, and I don't know if I want to go back into it, but is a bunch of them could never fit or don't fit within the, and this is the specific thing we want to discuss today, relatively speaking, within the media format of the non-fungible token. So, yeah. Um, for me, as someone who works a lot in augmented reality and performance, like I'm, there's never going to be an augmented reality. I mean, not, I won't say never, but I'm, I'm not interested no, in but figuring is, out how to squeeze that in. But there, there is a history of uh, selling performance art with a paper certificate or an sure. oral, oral contract even. And you could totally see you do a performance that tours around the world and at the end you sell it as an NFT. Yeah, I mean, I guess you, I was ta- I was talking to or uh, following a curator or, uh, on Twitter uh, who works at the Albright Knox, and you know, someone was asking, "Hey, like, hey, are you going to collect NFTs?" And her response was like, "We are in the b- business of collecting artworks, not certificates of authenticity." Yeah, <laughs> um, and I thought it was an interesting point because at the end of the day, the museums and the institutions and people in general. Are only yeah, are, are mostly but, interested in collecting the work, but this itself. is also an anti-establishment movement. This, this, mm-hmm. it, I think this was all set up for artists to connect directly with their audience. Even, even if there are structures behind it, I think yeah. the emotion is people are like, "Oh, I want to give to no, the artist." And yeah. yeah, exactly. And I, I, it's so predictable when we look back on it. We wouldn't have predicted how it transpired, but like. When we look back, you and I, for like three years on the podcast, not to give ourselves credit, because a lot of people were saying this, we were like, it's going to be the artists who own the platforms of the future. It's like going to be a cooperation and they're, they're going to figure out like, because right now they're not doing, you know, they're not really being recognized for or compensated for their work. And like, there was a lot of disgruntlement. It's not like 
without the disgruntlement, if everyone was happy, nothing would have probably, you know, wouldn't have transpired well, the same way. It's a good point because I think we, we grew up uh, with the old method and the new method comes up. But the artists that start now and that are used to this, there's no way back. There's no way where they're like, if, if you, it depends on the type of artist you are. Because some artists just want to be in the studio and be left alone and let someone else do PR. So, I think the one thing that will endure, though, is that like, an, an artist and an audience are kind of interlocked, right? And But um, not really. In, 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 and that's what I talked about, this this uh, opaque art world. There's, there's, mm. there's a long history of, of hermits and artists that only speak to the, to three people, like the right people. And other than that, they want to be left alone and they don't really have... The, the general audience doesn't even know who they are and they go mm-hmm. for millions. So that there's a whole art world of painters and sculptors that... Well, someone is just intermediating, knows. though, the relationship. I mean, like the relationship a, like still a good example, this Scottish abstract painter. Name, uh, yeah. Innes something. Yeah. He's so obscure, but uh, painting collectors love him. And he's known for painting a monochrome and then scraping off the, the pigment uh, with lots of turpentine. That's mm-hmm. his thing. So p- the, the whole thing about painting is applying paint, and he's about scraping off paint. And uh, like hardly one, anyone knows him except the people who can afford his work. Mm-hmm. And so he has zero cultural impact. No one is, he's not in the zeitgeist. He's just in the investment circuit. And he has this very private way of making work. Nobody, you know, painting experts know him. But outside of that, I don't think he, he claims to have any influence on popular culture or on the zeitgeist whatsoever that's not the goal and it's like it's just like these these fine notes in the history of painting at, at the very end of it and uh it's like a sushi chef and he's just like into details oh yeah you love your hero dreams of sushi Cal- callum <laughs> innes i think is the name callum innes right. uh, yeah but my point is that there's a that's an artist that's not going to do nfts mm-hmm. yeah and that's fine I think the my argument that's like absolutely fine. Like no, no, but what I, what I mean, maybe what we're talking about is um, the traditional collaboration between an artist and a gallery is that mm. you work together. Hopefully, the gallery finds you when you're young, and you do projects together. You help each other. If the artist does better, it's better for the gallery, and if the gallery does better, it's better for the artist. Yeah. And then you split fifty-fifty. That's that's but, the deal. Yeah. I don't want to be super mean to the gallery world, though, but, like, my experience was bad. Like, and I know that some people have had good experiences, but my experience was didn't sell, okay, we're going to spend less time figuring this out, you know, like... But that's th- that's okay, that maybe it was the wrong gallery for you. Yeah, I know. I, I've heard that many times, like, and I've talked to a lot of other artists that often have, like, blamed themselves in that situation. Um, and yeah, I don't think it's a blame, it's just, like... You you have to try a few, and then one gallery will work better with you than the other, and then you just decide. Oh yeah, that's exactly yeah. it. I mean, you you've been through a few galleries. I, yeah. I, what I'm trying to get at is that like, you know, there used to be this cliche that if you plug it in, if you have to plug it in, then it won't sell, right? Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I've spoken to people at auction. It's like, oh, I, I she so wouldn't even collect a Dan Flavin because it's like, oh, then you have to get a transformer for the different voltage in the different region. And, and no, I, I guess it comes shit. back to your convenience thing, though, in that case. Yeah. 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 Just make a painting. It's lightweight. And uh, yeah, even, you know, I make these enamel works, but each work is 20 kilos. And if it was a painting, it'd be three kilos. And uh, like, it's much easier to hang a painting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing maybe people might not be aware of or that we, we should talk about is that this 
doing this is not zero cost of production. There's like a, a like outside of the environmental costs, which I think is a whole podcast in of itself. Yeah. Um, there's actually like like a monetary cost to producing. Um, well, that, the, the only argument I would give there is that that kind of dictates the pace of working. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where on Instagram you can post five posts a day and it doesn't cost you anything. So mm-hmm. there's something good about a certain... I've always thought of this with domain names, that there should be a bit of a barrier to publishing. It, and it shouldn't be huge. And maybe, oh, yes, the, you the, have squatters the, too. maybe the gas price is too high. You know, like it, if for a non-NFT expert audience, to publish an NFT costs, depending on the time of day, I don't know, between $50 and $150. It was $150 last time I tried. Yeah, so... That's substantial, especially if you're still in school and et cetera. But um, I do think there should be some barrier because people, what I was called, piles of files, and you just have so much stuff, and I think it's good to have some barrier. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, my original argument, of course, was like about the perversion of like artificial scarcity, but I hear what you're saying, which is like it, 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 well, it introduces a consideration step, similar to like a disposable, it, it, like someone, an analog camera versus yeah. an iPhone camera, right? Where you're more I careful. I heard someone about the talking about that their kids just spent way more money on virtual clothing in video games than on real clothing because they were in sweatpants all day and they yeah. want to look cool in the video game. So, I, whatever the system is, that, that's a closed ecosystem run by a game company. Yeah. But whatever the system, there is a human element of, value and appreciation and emotional attachment and um yeah that's where i think there is a platform piece that's missing right now um to get back to platforms which i think is today's kind of macro kind of element here which is you know as a collector if my goal is to feel a part of a culture it's also to share that culture with others and um i don't think i mean you'd have to tell me but like i don't i haven't i should collect a piece have you collected a NFT no. yourself yet? No, I, I was worried about collecting because I'm like, oh, why did you choose this artist and not that artist? And hey, you should buy a piece of my... And I was like, oh, I don't want to get into this whole discussion. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Yeah. But like, I have seen like artists trading in each other's works. Yeah. And, um, and I've thought about jumping in as well. And um, But the one thing I've seen so far, and I've also heard this from collectors on my own kind of platform artworks, is that... There should it should feel like you can, and maybe we'll see this come from the platforms, but you can share it publicly. Well, Foundation has a very clear interface where you can see your creations and your collection in the same username. And uh, yeah, but it's still on a website. You know, yeah. and I know this is going to get into a weird space, but like, say I have a dinner party and I have a bunch of paintings and sculptures I bought. I can sh- I can tour people through the works and talk to them about why they're yeah. important to me, which is a common collector. Yeah, but here right? you don't even need the dinner party. You're browsing and you can go on OpenSea and see the owner name or you can go on So Foundation. you're saying it's just like because we spend most of our our, li- our, our lives online, the browsing might actually all but occur it, online as it, well. It, it sounds very similar to the way people consume movies. And I really miss movie theaters and I miss Metrograph and I hope they, they make it and they open back up. But I just know most people... Yeah. Right, no, the reason I bring most it up people is are not going back to movie theaters. Attempts were made and continue to be made. Like I always bring up the electric objects thing, and no shade on electric objects, but it was like you know, kind of a complete failure. Um, from electric the objects was a thing. was a a hardware screen with an ecosystem, and then it would be this small, uh, lightweight LED screen that you could put on your bookshelf, and then display animated gifs or other things, and yeah. kind of make a, a playlist on your phone, and it would change every hour, or every day, or whatever you wanted. Yeah, so they kind of targeted the collector first versus the artist. Yeah. Um, 
And you had similar well, constraints, many, right? Many different platform approaches have happened, and I think this one feels like it could have longevity because people put so much money into it. Mm-hmm. Well, if we want to talk about money, the only thing that's weird to me is the amounts because this would have felt more natural to me if they were like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll pay 100 bucks for that, then, you know, I'll pay 150 bucks for that. Like, that would have yeah. been totally fine. I actually think the money thing's less interesting to me than the platform discussion. Because yeah, but I think the emotions with, with the platform. Are tied to money. If, 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 what I mean is, you've been to the New York Art Book Fair? Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's crazy. I it's mean, crazy. It's there's like, yeah, there's yeah. like 35,000 people in, in three days. It's at, at PS1 and more. It's I mean, the it's biggest like a pandemic kind. disaster. If, you, if yeah, it existed yeah. in a pandemic, we'd all be dead. Yeah, yeah. but, but <laughs> it's, it's this wonderful energy where you see like, oh, this many people care about being together, sharing mm-hmm. small artist initiatives, artist-run things. It's great. It's fantastic. And, yeah, and, and, you know, most books there are like up to a thousand bucks, but most of them you can buy for a lot of one of a kind. Well, a lot of one of kind objects. Yeah, for, and for they're signed, series. and you can meet yeah. the artists, you can talk to them. So it's really communal and a nice price. And I feel like maybe that's what NFT was three years ago. Mm. But I think you're the 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 hype and audience attention is. I like this idea of the book fair as like a as a match because. Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, the book fair, obviously, the prices weren't as high, but the community well, energy was high. One of the coolest NFT projects, I thought, was uh, Travis Smalley on Folia. And he he makes a lot of scripted images. And part of his process is that he uses AppleScript or the scripting language in the Adobe software and then applies filters with all kinds of variables and lets it run wild. So he took an emoji, like a smiley, and then run all kinds of solarize and saturation filters and colorize and whatever. And he created 500 PNGs. And then on the website, each PNG was maybe 100 bucks in US dollars. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't see what the next one was. So you just had to hit the buy button. And so normally an edition of 100 or 10, each copy is the same. But here, each copy was unique. Each image was different. And so it, it exposed his digital process in a way that he had not shown before online. Because mm, you, you would see you would see his exhibitions and see 12 paintings, but you wouldn't see the 500 variants that he had created. Mm-hmm. And also, if you look at, if you go to the New York Art Book Fair, each copy of the edition is the same. Or if you buy a zine and there's 100 of them, they're all Xerox the same way. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was an interesting take on making something that's affordable. But then altogether, it also adds up that it is a, a profitable project for him, and he can uh, take that money and make new works. And it's not just charity. Because the the thing I know, I have a lot of friends who show at the New York Art Book Fair, and they all have to fly in, rent a table, rent a hotel, do the shipping of the books, and they, they barely break even. And it's a lot of hard, hard work. And then, Actually, that's an interesting point, because, and I didn't bring it up at all, and I don't know why, but like prior, you know, if we look back 10 years, the big platform in the art world that was kind of sweeping the world was the art fair. It was the weird vampire that was sucking everyone dry, yeah. Everyone was ta- yeah talking about like, oh, art fairs, they're just... Every, and it's work made for art fairs. Look, it's like yeah. a, it's no, a the, mirror the, with the a craziest, word on it. The craziest thing at some point was that they would commission work that would respond to the artist, uh, to the context of the art fair. So mm-hmm. different artists, to get in at a reasonable price, the gallery would be forced to make a performance or a sculpture or something that has a take yeah. on the idea of an art fair. So that's like Walmart asking artists, can you make art about Walmart? 
Yeah, no, I mean, I remember participating in Freeze in London and working with Lucky PDF, which was a collective there. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was there. And yeah. We, yeah, right. And we did a whole the thing TV lampooning channel. art fairs. Yeah, yeah, like a whole yeah. TV channel. Um, that was great, yeah. But ultimately, like, the it was work made for a fair about fairs at the time when fairs were And no were one's really peak. getting paid. It's just they, they just barely pay for the production. I got, yeah, zero dollars. <laughs> yeah. But the, the, the fairs made a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, So it exactly. was like YouTube was still around back then. And um, and so that's the funny thing. Like, a lot of people respond to NFT. It's like, oh, this is kind of like DeviantArt, and these are all just 3D renders of gamers and screensavers and whatever, and it's a bad context. And then everybody mm-hmm. goes to art fairs, which is a really bad viewing experience. Well, it's I don't know if everyone does go to art fairs. Art fairs no, kind of they the shark. No, but they I mean, well, yeah, 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 but I'm saying that for, for two decades, people have been focused on art fairs. Games. Yeah, I mean, the original intent of the art fair was to fr- like was a, f- a franchise and distribution model, not dissimilar from the internet. Like, if we can open, if we can, like, if a gallery can be in ten fairs in without one having year, to have a physical location in each city, yeah, without it having can a be visible, each city, yeah. yeah, it increases their collector. Well, it's also not um, one sided. I think a lot of galleries did very well because of art fairs, so it's it's not sure, all negative. Sure, sure. Yeah. You know, and so I remember my even my gallery um, was doing well when at art fair peak, and then they started to talk about like, well, the art fairs, I'm getting less and less of a return on my investment because the prices are going up. So it did kind of follow this like, you know, and maybe we'll see that it's too. Like gentrification like, on top of gentrification. Yeah, like where the econo- you know the economics ultimately have to work out for the participants, and, yeah, the, and that's where it comes back to the platform. I always say again. the landlord always wins. Well, YouTube is the landlord, I, yeah. I think, is the argument today. And then, you know, now we have these new landlords. You know, you have to say that Folia and Foundation and Nifty Gateway are all um, landlords because, Different for example, sizes. Yeah. we were talking about earlier, like, you add a hundred more of those. Well, within the attention economy rules, unfortunately, like, yes, on the internet, there is there are sliver uh, niches, right? But you can only slice things up so thin before... Potentially, like, um, well, it, it, but it does go back to that, that Kevin Kelly theory of like a hundred or a thousand true fans. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think right. part of the problem was a lot of people have a thousand true fans and they don't know how to buy work from you. And I've had a lot of people who are uncomfortable with galleries and or they live far away and they want to support, but they don't know how. And so the convenience factor is that's the revolution, I think. I, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the content, the way we make it, and the way we promote it is maybe hasn't changed. But we but should the, also state the obvious, which is like platform e- economics are at play here, right? Where these platforms are taking a percentage, they're just taking less. So what they're saying, you know, so the disruptive mechanism here is like, well, we can distribute for less and get this artist better economic return, and make it convenient for the collector. It's yeah. like it's a disruptive model. Um, and that doesn't mean it's not like but the, the, the it's thing permeable. that it does, at least for me, also is it uh, immediately helped my physical sales. So well, of course it's of it's good PR. Yeah. So if and and that's why I think we're in a transition. But I think there's going to be a whole generation of artists that do well in NFT space, and then when they want to work with a gallery, it's it's going to be on different terms because they're used to different terms. Mm-hmm. Maybe like, we uh, should we should remind folks that like. Galleries are not absent of this discussion, and like you just no. have to get on Twitter, and you'll see that galleries are like, "Well, I think we should, you know, we help build the reputation of this artist, so we should get a certain percentage." And that is like a that's still playing out, right? Yeah. I think we talked about that on the first. Yeah, podcast. but I think with a new generation of artists that start out in the NFT space, it's a 
Yeah. It's almost like, yeah, it's very interesting because who takes credit for the attention that gets generated? Is it the platform? You know, is it the gallery? Is it the artist? At what point, though, one of the funny things in well, those discussions it, to me, is always the, like... Those things are not, can't be calculated. They're incalculable. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like whoever has the inventory, like, oh, the works mm-hmm. are there. You, you can sell them. Well, you know, no, like, I mean, my, I'm pretty, like, much on the side of the fence of, like, the artist should, it should start with the artist because there's no economy without the artist. <laughs> yeah. Like that, like, and I don't know why this is a debate even like, sorry to be like a bit obnoxious about it because. Well, and especially with no artists, artists no who, who uh, start out doing things for 10 years without gallery representation. Most of digital artists just start out on their own. Yeah. The average is 10 years. It's and, not like you, you know, oh, I, I went to grad school with the, and I did my Yale MFA show and the gallery came in and then made my name. Yeah, there are these stories that are like, especially at Yale, that are like few and far between, but they did exist. And there was a, a time actually where Yale was like super hyped and people would sell out their studios, but then they would yeah. have like, you know, and there was even economist articles about like, you know, the MFA is like a a ticket to like a certain salary as an artist. Anyway, none of that stuff I don't think actually is as big a deal anymore. But, um, you know, the thing I'm trying to, you know, I want to get out there is that like, yeah, most artists work for negative money for a very very long time Um, yes start their own uh, channels whatever if whether it's a physical space or a digital space or a publication and yeah yeah and they build a following and a lot of the times they're doing that on their own for a very very long time and others do help them so like the huge a huge number of festivals helped me for example over the years and a lot of like a lot of artist run centers curators the curator relationships for me have been the most valuable it's different for everyone yeah um, and they don't ask and for often, a percentage. No, and they don't ask for anything actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, over time, like we we've, I, you know, there's definitely been fair exchange, but um, you know, I think all of the all of that infrastructure though still relies on the artist existing, and so you know, like <laughs> until the debates, AI did. It does better work than we do. Well, it would be absurd, yeah. Like if you know, they're like, well, we got to support our AI. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. make sure the AI can <laughs> make the AI happy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but well, there's the, we, the cruelty of, the, of the, what you're talking about with art fairs, and that smaller galleries nurture talent, and then the bigger sharks come in and take the talent. And um, but at well, the I'm same, really, but really at the same time, the idea that or the narrative that artists are taking advantage because I don't think they are. I think like no, artists but are the, well, that's that's. I think that's the. If if uh, if the goal is for the artist to become more successful, then it's inevitable that they'll move on to if there's another channel that sells the work better. Well, also not every artist is interested in selling, and you know, and, and in particular, some are actually, you know, and historically, it, it's antithetical to their practice, and so, which I also I, I deeply respect, and I think there's lots of room for What's that. What's antithetical to their practice? to actual to sell their actual works right like not every artist practice is compatible with the idea of yeah, sales yeah, yeah. there are other yeah. and there are other ways for those artists to earn a living like for example Teaching. myself like having a job but like yeah. there are we prior on the podcast we talked about subscriptions like or creating experiences for people or yeah or a trust you know, fund yeah, you got to the trust fund is like the go-to. I mean, that's real like, like uh, uh, totally yeah we don't at use the, end the, of the day, survival matters stuff, right yeah is the bottom line. So yeah. you can't ignore that money is, is part of the equation, but it's um, you also can't ignore that the platforms are part of the production um, yeah. and the context for that production. So One, one question I have is that everybody's like, 
oh, this is a, there's two words people keep using, pyramid scheme and bubble. And so mm-hmm. the first one I want to tackle, the pyramid scheme, is that the whole idea of network effect is a pyramid scheme. Like, oh, I don't want to go on Snapchat. Uh, Instagram is more convenient. If we're all on Instagram, we can all message each other. Oh, it sucks that you're on Telegram. That's annoying. Uh, can't you just find me on WhatsApp? That, yeah, that's a good summary of the network effect. And so there's no way of not having a, a centralization, except NFT is decentralized and, and is open source, and there are different skins on top of it, different communities, but there's an open... Di- so what I'm trying to say, NFT as a whole, as a cultural movement, the more mm-hmm. people understand it and participate the more it grows the more the returns are and, and that is the definition of a pyramid scheme like oh you put some money in and i take some out mm-hmm. well i think you could probably argue that culture is a pyramid scheme because yeah yeah it's, it's just like once you start comparing things to a pyramid scheme it's like oh a hit song is a pyramid scheme yeah the argument i've made is like we support um you know and our parents do and our grandparents and, and whoever can and our government ultimately supports the supports wall street um and all they're doing is sup- they're trying to support the retirement right funds of, of folks or the oh, pension yeah, yeah, plans. Oh yeah, yeah, pensions are um, a pyramid because scheme. Because if yeah. if we fit if we fail to no longer believe in those things, then people will, if we know, don't lose. believe in the future, yeah, yeah. And so they're like it's artificially supported, and it's artificially supported by like printing money, and that's what ends up you know inflating the prices of things over time. But ultimately, the government has a role to play in that pyramid scheme. And we're not really, we don't fault it because we're like, well, what's the alternative? Like complete and utter collapse of you know, the whole thing. But we do criticize it from a capitalist standpoint. Yeah. We know that it's crisis driven by design. Yeah. And yeah, I think sure. you could probably argue in this case too, like just like a housing market, you know, in Toronto where I live, we have a so-called bubble like housing market where yeah. prices. But how is out- it a bubble if it keeps going up? Well, this is the thing. Like at the end of the day, they always say, like, if you're living in the house, it's not really a bubble because, like, you have to live. But there was a, there was a bubble in 2008. So there was in the United States, yeah. Yes, yeah. but the, I, I know that, that there are places like Manhattan where there was never really a housing bubble because they vet people so much because of the co-op system and who they allowed to buy and you have to make a lot more money than even your bank would lend you sure so they're very strict on so the whole housing crisis was never and i probably toronto is the same it's just it's so valuable and it's growing so fast that there's so many people invested in it that it just but it, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll see we'll see yeah we're the fifth most overvalued market or something like that in the world or something after yeah. sydney yeah australia but like it is a bit you know, in, you know, but like, then it, the, the, another bubble that might be interesting is the retail and office spaces in cities, which have been, have to be rethought. And they were already, at least in New York, all the stores were empty, all the storefronts, and the landlords were just like, "Yeah, oh, let's just leave it empty for five years. We'll see what happens." And so they were speculating too much. The rent was too high for stores. It wasn't affordable for a store to be on Broadway. And mm-hmm. then retail moves online, so that's a double whammy. And then, at what point does the bubble burst, or are they all going to be WeWork spaces? I well, don't know. I just don't think I don't think the bubble burst because in in a lot of ways because what's happened. And I know I, I I made the opposite argument on the last podcast, but is that and we're not financial just, advisors. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we never state that yeah. we're not. Like, I'm always like, you should talk to an accountant. Yeah. Um, but uh, because what, what like part of what you're seeing is just a transposition of power from. You know, like the art fair power dynamics are being transposed. Yes, there's a bunch of people being left behind, but you know, it's the same behaviors just in a new 
place with do, new mediation, right? And yeah. or disintermediation in the case of the gallery, the private galleries. Yeah, gets got squeezed out. I'm sorry, like, but that trend has been happening for like ten or fifteen years, right? And those new contracts, there are some of those people did sneak in though too, yeah. right? So well, one of the things I think you're seeing now is that. Uh, Stores or landlords are are going into a revenue share model with stores, mm-hmm. so you don't pay rent, but they will vet your accounting at the end of the year and say we're, we're taking this percentage. Right, yeah, because geography geography will probably still have value, you know, for the next it's, few hundred years. I have to say, everything feels so uncertain that I I could see. New York just becoming like Blade Runner, completely empty with a few weirdos, and I could see it thriving. It, like both seem highly plausible. I have no idea. <laughs> well, Blade yeah. Runner like still had an economy. It still had people living in the city, right? Like, but they, 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 there was that puppet master guy that uh, yeah they hang out with, and his house was huge because most people had left the planet. I just think like power. You know the old saying, "Power uh, corrupts absolutely," or whatever. Or abs- power corrupts absolutely. Absolute power uh, corrupts. Yeah, something. Power corrupts absolutely. It's going to hold true here too. Like, there's going to be certain power players that are going to misbehave, and you can't. You like, ultimately, there's already, you know, certain artists that were already doing well that are doing even better. Like your Grimes example. Yeah. And so some of the power dynamics have already been translated, which is that's similar. That's similar to how people earn uh, money on YouTube. That very few people make a living off of YouTube, but it's it's the dream of it that brings everyone in. But the people who can afford to participate in YouTube are also, you know, relatively, um, you, you know, you think of it as a accessible thing, but it's actually not very accessible because um, there's tons of stories. You mean to publish a 10-minute video twice a week that's well edited. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, really, it's really, really a high bar now. Like, yeah. we all, yeah, we can't all be um, these this level of kind of No, but and, and the, I think another example is... Uh, if teaching moves to remote and uh, you need fewer teachers, then fewer teachers will make more money and a lot of teachers will be left uh, without any job. So it's like the the, the sort of platformization yeah. requires, I, br- I don't know, it, it, I think I I'm also it because treading I, I, into I, I, territory yeah. where I, I'm, no, just, no. I'm just reciting other people's podcasts. So maybe you yeah, should yeah. listen to Scott Galloway. Yeah. Sure, sure. I just mean that I think that there are also going to be cooperative alternatives. I just know this because I'm writing a grant this weekend. Yeah. <laughs> like, and you're like, why are you writing a grant for that? Why don't you just do it? But like, I, I do think that like, <laughs> there's probably going to be alternative, or I would encourage alternative uh, points of view. Like, Just because it is this way right now doesn't mean it has to stay this way. Um, and there yeah, are already... I, I, like, I do think it, what we're seeing already is that there are people that are not the superstars, but they sell things for one or two ether, and that's way yeah. more than they ever made. It's, it's really great. It's like if that means you could take Fridays off from your job, that, that's sure. amazing. Yeah, I think my only my only point is like um, this is an evolving story, and artists. I like that artists are involved in defining the terms for one of the first times, yep. you know, in a while. Yeah, and, and one um, of the things I find interesting is that value changes the perception of work. That um, moving images can have the intense viewing that people give to painting. I think for a long time people have discarded gifts or screensavers in a derogatory way, and once they become valuable over the years, they're like, "Oh, there's something to this flurry screensaver," and it was using a new way of of generating images that didn't exist before, and there are precursors to this, and it had influence, and people will study it. 
Yeah. And I think that's one of the positive effects of value is that people will look more intently. Well, I kind of wanted to give you an easy out as well and say like the the definition is in the process of being defined. Like how often should I post? What should I post? All yeah, of this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all up for grabs in a way. Um, and even the economics of the platforms, there's no reason there couldn't be a, one that's free. Um, these are, or one that's like about that's completely run by artists and completely not for profit. Like all of these things are up for grabs. The, the, I yeah, think the it does, seem, it does thing, seem that the, basically the shopping part of the technology has been so uh, optimized that the cost of creating a store is, is, is going down and down. You remember back in the day when you, mm-hmm. let's say you wanted to start a, a website where you would sell uh, zines or self-made books. Yeah. There was like no way of connecting a credit card to a website that yeah. took a number of years and the shopping cart and JavaScript and all. And it's just getting easier and easier and easier. Well, you know, it reminded me about like getting back to the, the, the convenience thing. A friend sent me something earlier this week because we were talking about, well, what if we wanted to build our own NFT platform? And they sent me something called lazy.com. And it, the headline on the website is, the ways the lazy way to show off your nfts <laughs> <laughs> but like ultimately i think that's you're right like we're heading towards this like you pull it off the shelf you plug it in shopify changed you know amazon like went up against amazon by uh, making it more accessible for you to start your own e-commerce store and then lots of people did so yeah we're in the midst of like but it, it, yeah i mean there's so much to talk about because there is the the problem of curation and that maybe that will be the role of the gallery even if we don't want to think of a middle person uh, between the artist and the audience that at some point the vastness of content is so huge that you need channels and whether those channels are galleries or curators or uh, critics or uh, i'm not sure yeah yeah that's your attention economy thing but that's fo- folio as an example where they they are a curated nft platform mm-hmm I mean, I, I think they're all very interesting. Like Feral File is another one that's like artist run and where there's like a marketplace too of buying and selling on the platform. You know, you know. Um, it, 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 sorry to interrupt, but what really is happening yeah. is that I, I felt this from the start that the computer is the first primary visual tool for humans now. Like children start drawing on the iPad sooner than on paper. Hmm. So art education and, it, it, you know, the way I... Was, came up was that you try all the materials and you try cutting in stone and you try silk screen and you try mm-hmm. oil paint and this is the default way where people make images and experiment with moving image and then the art world sort of forced you to go out of that and then professionalize and I think this is a place where a lot of yeah. whether you call them creators or artists but where they can be themselves and be spontaneous I do think you're making a good point which is I can remember just a few years ago the zombie formalism craze was about artists like you and I like digital artists create and like and post internet was about like let's go create paintings because we can't sell our digital artwork and you know so paintings that look like uh, screen based yeah which is there's nothing wrong with that and and interesting things came out of that but uh, I think I'm I'm talking more on a broader scale where Mm -hmm. uh, with the post internet maybe you there's like 25 artists that we talk about but here Mm -hmm. we're talking about maybe a billion artists it's a different scale. And, and so whether you use the word artist or creator or creative or whatever, mm-hmm. it, it, if, if you think of the art world being like a gallery can handle about 12 to 100 artists, these platforms can handle a million or a billion artists. It's, it's just a different mindset. 
It's going to be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, I've heard so many people say bubbles, so we'll find out. But I, I don't really see why it would go away. Well, I think, it again, if you strip money, if everything were available for free on the platform, so strip money out of it, would you still participate? Well, for me, um, I made browser-based works with a domain name, and the domain name was the certificate of authenticity or the, mm-hmm. the uniqueness. But the, the problem is that domain names are hard to handle. And in my case, the NFT, together with the moving image, uh, becomes the, the work. Mm-hmm. And then I'll keep the... I'm still thinking about the structure. So if, if NFT keeps going, I will keep the web pages yeah. as the source files. So the source is available for anyone. They can look at the code. Mm-hmm. And NFT is a, is a compact version of it. Yeah. But, but what I'm trying to say is it, it, yeah. it, it's, a, uh, it's a more permanent... Uh, uniqueness than a domain name so it solves a problem for me I see and my point was more like just to give you a free pass on the fact that you know a lot of folks were doing things anyway and then um, you know then they're like oh I can do this thing and get paid for it Um, it ignores the platform parameters which has been a large part of what we've discussed today but you're at you're reminding me that that is a a key or central part of um, making work for platforms. Yeah, and, and I think there's a lot of problems to be solved, but I think it's very easy to discard NFT if you don't need it. There's a lot of people who don't need NFT at all. They, they make art in a traditional form, and they're happy, and it's working, and they have a good gallery, and it's fine. But there's a lot of people who are unheard and who don't have a channel for their work. Yeah, I mean, I just think that there are a lot of artists that are... What we're seeing is, you know, the reason we're getting so much attention... Um, from artists, not you and I necessarily, but this this in general, is because the artist is starving. You know, and I've said that many times. Like I, I disagree with that statement. Like, I really think I think if you go back to the '60s, I think far yeah. fewer people could make a living off of creativity than now. Mm-hmm. I, I I'm I'm I don't have data, but I've spoken to curators that were hanging out with conceptual artists at the time, and they were like counting the pennies to just have enough to buy an egg sandwich for one day and then wouldn't have food the rest of the day. And these were famous people. These were people that were showing in the prime exhibitions. Um, You're making like kind of the golden age of television argument then, which is like that we should expect more participation and more wealth because there's more attention available for it. And um, that's Yeah, and I think it's also... uh, we've, We've grown up with a hierarchy of culture that a symphony is valued higher than a, a SoundCloud uh, piece. Mm-hmm. But actually in the Zeitgeist, guys, that SoundCloud track is much bigger. And so I, th- I think that's the flip when you think of the art world and, and popular culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, that in, in, uh, w- One of the things that stuck with me is that Grimes sold the stuff for $6 million and I'm like, oh, that's the budget of like a, a good indie film. Yeah. But when you think about it, memes are so much more influential than indie films in in, in our age. So mm. wh- which one is valued more? Like, yeah. is, is, it, does Nyan Cat have more impact than an indie film? Sure. I mean, that's like the like the philosophical rabbit hole. I mean, at the end of the day, though, what we would what we would hope for and expect is that that people who uh, that their that access should be you know, is an issue at some point, right? Like that. Um, the, you mentioned the symphony, right? Like not everyone can train for 10 years to become a violinist or has access to uh, yeah, the, the money to buy a violin, right? Like I would hope that 
because I'm just dealing with this even with my own platform where I'm like, I'm having to buy people phones um, to, you know, because they don't have a LIDAR scanner. Yeah, they don't have like face ID on the front of their phone to scan their body for the project or whatever. So I'm yeah. like, okay, well, I'll buy you a phone. And then like, I find out what phone they have. And the phone is like, five to 10 years old. And I'm like, Oh, my goodness, you know, they have an upgrade. This is like the primary device that I consider for production and consumption, you know, yeah. I actually can like, yeah. and the world talks about it that way, but the artist doesn't have access to it still. Um, yeah, and, and, and your quite, argument quite that the the NFT collectors favor things that are well produced and not the raw net art aesthetic. Well, I don't know if I I, I I'm, I'm certain about that yet, but I would be interested. Like it's like if you walked into a gallery and the painting's not framed well, and I mean there are artists that are able to pull that off. They're able to tape a banana to the wall, you <laughs> yeah. know. As <laughs> but like. Um, can everyone do that? No. Well, they, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is funny that I always thought of art like art is a dream job. Not everybody gets to be a pop star, so we shouldn't expect if you can sing well that you'll make a living. That's not automatic. And well, that's you know, where my argument is about and, the power dynamics of the real world yeah. being transposed over. But what I'm what I'm trying to say is nurses or teachers or anyone doing a real job that creates actual concrete value, they should have a pension. They should be. Uh, an, Etc. They should be well taken care of, and then you th could think of artists as dream jobs. But then, if we head in a direction where everything's automated, an artist is the only job left. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. So, it, it, like, age like you have robots yeah. for nurses, and and the 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 garage is all automated, and it repairs your car, and well, you know, you know, it'd be interesting. A bunch of artists got together, took this NFT, you know, the NFT earnings that are in excess, put them in an endowment that we, you know, then and ended up in a universal basic income kind of fund for all artists. <laughs> yeah. And you would be like, Jeremy, you got it to socialism. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the yeah. And then you've already paid half of your NFT money in taxes. That's right. And then it all gets pulled yeah. in taxes. And actually all along it was, it was the illusion of wealth where, you know, potentially none existed in the first place. But <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, so we did another hour and 15. I don't know if we ended Sorry, up anywhere we, better. Sorry, we don't have any tips how to optimize your view count and uh, how to get traction. But uh, Well, the one good point hopefully yeah. we made is like in within the history of platforms and, the, and even the history of art and art's evolution through multiple power dynamics, right? Like there's been different phases from, you know, kings and queens commissioning paintings to, you know, galleries, artist-run centers, um, all the way up well, through the, art fairs yeah. and to present, you know, discussion. What there, the the artists have been part of the definition phase at different junctures. Yeah. But I think now at this stage more than ever, and so I, I don't know. I well, was it's like also the, the benefactors. So there's always been benefactors, and there's been tastemakers and and creators, whatever you want to call them. And it's this ecosystem, and it was always kind of opaque this world of like okay you get to paint the 16th chapel you get the assignment not that person mm -hmm. and here it's kind of a wild west i think that's the new networked thing where it's just like anyone can bid on it and uh but even in that era the desire so who, was for apprenticeship who, who's, which who's is the like taste the maker yeah that's the thing people are still seeking right like apprentice me like help me figure out how to create value and well, all i'm saying is yeah but it, it's it, not well it, understood. what i'm saying is in in the traditional art world the buyers are directed by galleries or advisors oh mm -hmm. you should buy this that's not yeah, that's not in good taste and that's yeah. kind of gone now well i don't think it's gone though i think it's just different tastemakers and different rules right 
And that, mm-hmm. that kind of disruption is like classic, right? Like outside of the art world. So you think a taste classic. will form and there will be a, a sort of well, like, agree, you know, agreed talk- consensus on what is a good NFT? Well, I'm just saying like Netflix was able to disrupt Blockbuster or whatever based on changing the rules of the game, right? Like if you change the rules, everything's up for grabs. But at that yeah, point, yeah. like there's also the period of definition. And Marshall McLuhan would say like every new media starts out being the history of the previous media, but over time evolves its own rules. And I'm just yeah, saying like yeah. we're in that rule definition phase, which is a very exciting time for us to do the right thing. Um, and I, I'm excited that artists are part of the definition yeah. process. I, I, I also want to say something that every, every year I, I thought, I can't keep going making websites. This is so old now. But I kept having ideas for websites. And so mm. the, if you go through my timeline, I didn't publish any websites in 2020. I did the same a, thing with videos, by the way. Which was a COVID year, which would have made sense to publish a lot of mm-hmm. websites. But I had all these websites that were unpublished because I just, I was like, I have to buy domain names again. It just seems so old-fashioned. <laughs> and I was just waiting for the next step, but I did, uh, I guess intuitive. And even when, when the next step came, I was like, no, NFT is stupid. But then mm-hmm. I talked to a lot of people, and then I was like, okay, I'll give it a try. Um, so I, I hope it lasts. Uh, I don't know. It seems like a cool system. No, things evolve. That's my point. That's my good yeah. point. Like That's all I'm going to say is like things evolve. And you shouldn't be surprised when they change again. That could be um, a cool T-shirt. <laughs> Things evolve. I've, I've been sitting on this like um, Folia website, this whole podcast, um, and it's got Harm Van Den uh piece like scrolling of the skull, melting skeletons, kind of like yeah, it's like a GIF or something. Yeah, and um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely evolution is at play. But Harm, as an example, launched his own gallery with cryptocurrency years ago. Left gallery. We've mentioned it on the yeah. podcast. Yeah, and he, he even ahead. tried to get people to collect the works on his site by NFT. I think I think you shared that with me, and he couldn't he couldn't get them to do it. Like it was too much of an inconvenience. Um, so yeah, you know, I mean, there, there, there is a, a moment in technology where it becomes that's the network effect thing. Where at first it, it's so nerdy, and there's not enough people, and it's not exciting, and then there's a certain momentum where it's like, okay, this is it's really happening. Yeah, you do have to have participation for something. I, I, I worry a little bit about. I always think back about RSS, and mm, I, it was I'm a beautiful a, technology. I'm I'm a big fan of RSS. So RSS is this <laughs> is this protocol where you have a blog and it it will ping whoever's listening and say, "Hey, we have a new article," and it's basically it was copied by Facebook and Twitter uh, with the feed. And but it was open source to start. As it well, was open right? source and ad free, same way that like podcasts email. you pull with an RSS, and it was just too complicated for people and they felt like this obligation oh my, my RSS I have so many unread articles it gives me anxiety and so I, I worry sometimes can open source really have have persistence or is it will it, someone who's saying oh the future of NFTs is that you're just in Instagram and you buy a post and you have bragging rights yeah no no doubt my point is that like Someone is working on it right now. <laughs> They're yeah, figuring out yeah. how to but how to I, become the master aggregator. The beauty of it right now is that it's open source, and whether that will last, I guess we'll see. Yeah, yeah. But see you later, uh, Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> it's Bye. Been fun. It's been fun. <laughs> so funny too, yeah. because Twitter is like trying to monetize like crazy right now. Like, oh yeah, they're all doing these different business models. Sort of a Patreon up. Twitter feed. Yeah. yeah, and it's like Twitter. Where were you? Like. 
10 years ago. You should have <laughs> you should have got going on this. Innovator's um, dilemma. Mhm. Yeah. Okay, well, yeah, hopefully we um you uh, hopefully know, this helps a little bit in the mountain of NFT dialogue. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think the only thing to be that's true. I know we've gone way way over time now is that like everyone there like I would encourage people to get out there and become part of the discussion to, to advance the next chapter and and define the terms um for the media. And I think you made a good point, which is like, you can try things out and that doesn't, it's not like you're going to, what's, what do you have to lose? And, um, I think there's the environmental cost that you have to lose, obviously, but that, you know, outside you can of that, pay to offset that. Yeah. We didn't even mention the, like the other platforms and I can't pr pronounce it properly, but well, there are clean art, NFT platforms. Yeah. There are clean NFT platforms now that are artist run too, that are proof of stake instead of proof. Yeah, of Yeah. I mean, that's a whole discussion where you think of the environmental impact of a physical art fair like oh boy mm -hmm. yeah i don't know but like, i mean that's the already shaking out where people are shipping. The, yeah i just i mean i'm excited by that though that the alternatives are already shaking out so it's yeah. not all like a wealth craze it's also people playing with the technology and making it easy and cheaper even to exchange works and um mm. i don't know yeah it's, it's okay cool oh yeah that's the one i wanted to mention um is uh the uh how do you pronounce it though it's like heist heist do you know what i'm talking about the no. um the, the like the environmentally friendly it's h-i-c-e i've never heard anyone say it so h-i-c-t-n-u-n-c dot x-y-z that's and a catchy name i it might actually end up yeah i think it's just because it's not english which is yeah. like you know but maybe you pronounce it hitchy or something you know what? I, yeah, I wish someone could tell me. So if a listener can let me know how to pronounce it correctly. But if you get on there, it's another yeah. uh, artist-run uh, platform, but where the cheap prices are cheaper and the environmental cost is low. Um, it's worth checking out. Anyway, we should probably stop talking, but um, yeah. it's just an example of like things are evolving as we speak. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Now what the hell's an NFT apparently? So much money. Can you please explain what's an NFT? I said, what the hell's an NFT? It's like real life monopoly. Everyone is doing it like Gronkowski. Can you please help me make an NFT? Yeah.